Welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. We release weekly podcasts featuring insights from leading surgeons and other surgical professionals. Our host for today is Professor Hitendra Patel, who is a global key opinion leader in robotic assisted surgery, telesurgery, and editor-in-chief of the World's Journal of Clinical Oncology. We hope you enjoy the GRASP podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP as I keep calling it. Uh, today we are very fortunate. We have a top paediatric surgeon from Guy's and St. Thomas's in London, and it's Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor and a very gr- good chance for me to uh, participate in uh, your podcast. Uh, all the best and congratulations for uh, all the work you have done so far on this. Thank you. So, so let's just jump straight into it. Um, tell me, what made you become a pediatric robotic surgeon? What drove you there? Uh, so just to clarify, uh, I am a transplant surgeon and uh, uh, my robotic practice at the minute is the, the adult population um, and uh, hope, hopefully in the near future, uh, future we are going to go to uh, kids as well. Um, so if we speak uh, why I, you know, I uh, joined the pediatric uh, transplant team. We are six surgeons that manage all the pediatric London population that needs a transplantation for kidney. Uh, for me, it's a, first of all, it's a big challenge because operating on kids, we all know that has its own challenges, and um, you know you need uh, this specific uh, set of skills to be able to uh, perform it. Uh, successfully uh, and then you know I I love kids I have my own kids and I love kids and uh, it's uh, the pleasure and uh, the satisfaction I get after uh, a successful transplantation is if uh, if it is big when you operate on adults is really much much bigger when you operate on kids uh, so these two things are uh, what mainly drove me and uh, you know to participate in the pediatric transplant world so, so with that, with the transfer of skills from adults to children, how did you? How is that? As I mean, it can't be easy. What What are the sort of things you've had to do to transfer your skills between adult and children population? So it's a good question because uh, many times uh, people and surgeons think that uh, I have the skill to perform an operation in adults, so why? how much more difficult it is to do it in kids. But actually, there is much more difference because the, the child is not a small adult. The child is a completely different person uh, and has its own challenges uh, in terms of anesthetic challenges and operative challenges. I'll give you an example. When you do laparoscopy or robotic, for example, in a, in a kid, you need to be able to work in a much more smaller space um, where all the organs are very close together. So the risk of damaging these organs is significantly higher. Also, when you operate on kids, you need to remember that the um, the volume of blood in a child is much less than the volume of blood in an adult patient. As a result, any bleeding in a child can be much more difficult to 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 uh, you know to uh, to manage than. Uh, 
comparing to adults. Mm -hmm. And finally, when you do laparoscopy, um, which robotic is laparoscopic surgery as well, then, you know, it has its own challenges in terms of anesthetic management um, because, uh, you know, you, you have all this uh, less volume, uh, increase intra-abdominal pressure, and then how the child with small lungs can, you know, can um, compensate for this. So uh, it's true that it's a big challenge uh, and it's not very easy to, you know, to transfer your adult experience. But of course, I had uh, many years of experience and, uh, and then my colleagues, uh, you know, helped me uh, to, uh, to adapt and adjust in this uh, pediatric world. So if we take the anesthetic considerations aside and we take the, the size of the child, the physiology of the child to one side for the moment, if we talk about the technology of the robotics and the instruments, do you think that the current systems lend themselves well to the, the future pediatric surgeries that you will be encountering or performing? I mean, um, so the pediatric, when you think for pediatric population, mm -hmm. uh, you think for kids uh, that can be as small as 10 kilograms, and this is the smallest of the kids that we are going to operate and perform a kidney transplantation, to kids that can be like adults, so 70, 80, 90, or 100 kilograms as well. All this, you know, so is a, is a big uh, spectrum uh, of uh, child size. Um, so for, as you can imagine, for the bigger, the bigger children, the challenges are uh, less. But as you go to operate on smaller and smaller children, then this is where it comes more difficult. Because as I said before, uh, the main challenges are first that you have a very limited space. And what it means is that uh, all the organs are so close together that the risk of damaging the bowel, for example, or another organ is much more uh, significant. Then um, you have when you work with robotic uh, with robot with robot, you need at least. It depends on the operation, of course, but uh, you have the four robotic tro uh, ports, and on top of this, you might have an assistant port. Or, as in our case, when we do the transplant, you might need to perform a small incision as well to put the kidney in the abdomen. So you know. Uh, it, this is a big challenge because there is no much space to fit all this on a small kid's side. So I think, um, you know, for the small children, definitely there are a lot of challenges and you need to go progressively to those. Uh, and uh, on our side, but on the company side, then we are looking probably either for uh, the single port uh, robotic systems or for robotic systems that uh, will be able to perform the same procedure with less number of, uh, of, uh, of ports. Okay. That's, that's uh, you know, my Excellent. view. Thank yeah. you. No, no. Excellent answer. So um, if we just move slightly to the side of this conversation, I, I noticed that you are in charge of the robotic donor nephrectomy program. So um, can you just tell me, uh, when did you start that and how much help did you have? Did you start from scratch? What, what happened to make that come to fruition? So uh, the program started in uh, December 2018. Uh, now, there are a few challenges uh, that I can mention. 
One is the economic aspect. Because you have an operation that has excellent outcomes, like the laparoscopic procedure, and everybody asking, why do you want to do a more expensive operation? What the advantages is going to offer? Uh, and for this, we needed to get grants, um, from uh, grants from the company and grants uh, from the hospital uh, to be able to, you know, to develop our program in the beginning. The second thing is that uh, because you are transplant surgeons, our exposure with robots is limited. And unfortunately, when you have urology, for example, they are able to perform two cases every day, two robotic cases. In transplant, is not the same. As you know, we can do two, three tra live donor transplants a week. And this is only because we are a very big uh, live donor center, the biggest in UK. And we have this luxury. In other centers, they are doing one every week or one every other week. So the exposure on the robot is not that big. Um, and then, you know, my background is general surgery and uh, uh, I had a lot of experience in open laparoscopic surgery, but not in robotic surgery. So what I did personally was that I devoted a lot of time, and by this I mean that I was going for one year, every Thursday I remember, uh, after hours when there, when everybody was got finished with the robotic surgery, I was going to work until from 6 to 10, 11 in the evening on the simulator until I mastered all the exercises and I was able to perform you know, on the simulator and uh, have a, a achieving between uh, 99 and 100%. And that's not an exaggeration. You can imagine, I mean, if you spend so much time. Mm. And then after I did this, I modified my laparoscopic approach a bit. So I moved the camera where the robotic camera is. And uh, I tried to do most of the operation from the front, as you do when you operate robotically. And this helped me. Uh, and, you know, after going through this, um, this is, you know, when I jumped and started to perform the, the donor uh, procedure. Uh, yeah. Yes. So that's interesting. So you use the simulator as a training model. Um, have you developed any yeah. other models for live donor that you use now? Anything else around? So, yes. Uh, so uh, I am planning to start the robotic recipient program. And actually, we have the date for the first operation uh, is going to be the 6th and 7th of February, given everything is going well, of course. So the robotic recipient program is a completely different uh, program. And as you know, uh, performing a transplant, the most crucial part of the operation is to be able to perform the anastomosis. Mm -hmm. And um, when you perform the anastomosis robotically without having the haptical feedback, uh, you have the risk either for bleeding if the anastomosis is very loose or for tightening and creating a stenosis. Um, when you go to courses, uh, you do a bit of practice, of course, but to do a course, it costs uh, between 3.5 and 4,000 pounds. Uh, and you can do it once when you do a bit of... Uh, so in my view, the course... I don't think it can give you the it can give you the practice that you need to go and perform the operation live. What the course can give you, however, is the confidence because when you go for the course, it's the first time that you operate on live uh, tissue, and that's very important. If you go from dry lab to to a, to a person, you know you miss this uh, in between step. And the course that's what it gives you because you it gives you the confidence that you operate on live tissue. Here, however, we 
developed our own model where we 3D printed a kidney and the pelvis, and then we uh, and then we use some deceased donor vessels that we get when uh, we get the kidneys for a deceased donor transplantation. So we fit these deceased donor vessels in this model, and we practice on the same vessels that we use as in real life because these are deceased donor vessels. So by these, we, first of all, we can handle real tissue. Second, we can uh, measure our performance either by timing the performance or examining the anastomosis at the end. And this gives us a big advantage, I believe. Uh, and that's how we plan to, this is my tra the training I'm going through at the minute, uh, planning to start the procedure in uh, early February. That's amazing. It's an incredible model. So just for the listeners and viewers, uh, this type of hybrid simulation model takes into account all the things that are missing um, for training. And I think I congratulate you on that. That's an amazing model you've got. And tell me, the 3D printing, um, what's the consistency of the kidney that you print? Is it very soft? Is it quite firm? How do you feel about the consistency of that kidney? So on the kidney, uh, so it's firm. To say this, uh, and it do, we don't pay much. Um, I mean, in a way, we don't pay much attention because what we do is that we 3D print very short renal artery and vein, and mm -hmm. then we attach on this deceased donor vessels. Okay. So the material that we work is actually deceased donor vessels, but the kidney and the pelvis help mm -hmm. us to get the to get the uh, you know the, how you you put you position yourself in space yeah. like in actual operation yeah and the other big thing about anastomosis which you mentioned earlier either leakage or stenosis how are you measuring the tension on your sutures because that's still an issue for robotics without the haptic feedback Yes, I mean, there is no real way to measure, but uh, what we do is that, first of all, to to check if there is any leak, we flush the anastomosis at the end, and by this we can see if there is any leak. And if there is no leak, then we will open the vessel and we'll check the anastomosis from the inside, and by this we can see whether there is any narrowing, any stenosis. If you no. want to be even more specific, you can measure the uh, diameter of the artery before you start the anastomosis, and then you can cut and measure the diameter diameter of the anastomosis at the end and by this you can see whether you know you have created what you believe or you whether you have caused any stenosis amazing uh, really i'm fascinated by the model uh, we're interested in training models which are useful in the real patient and you know how do you do that safely um so this is a great model so uh, tell me so I can share a video with you, uh, you know, where it is uh, it is shown how the model works and uh, yeah. what how well it is related to real life. So we will we'll get to that video for one of the webinars we do with you for sure. So um, if we just uh, just to move on a little bit from what we're talking about, you obviously mentioned training. So how many people do you help train a year in your team, at guys? And you know those that training. How difficult is it for those trainees to learn the new techniques that we're discussing? 
So at the minute, uh, it's only me who performs this operation and uh, the priority for the minute is to establish our program. And you cannot establish a program if you have just one surgeon performing it. So we are going through a phase that I'm training colleague surgeons. There are two colleagues that uh, are under training at the minute. As you know, for the robotic donor nephrectomy, you need about 25 patients, uh, cases to be able to replicate your results. How fast they are going to reach at this point, it depends on their background. One of the colleagues, for example, is urology, and she already performs some robotic operations. For her, it's going to be easier to pick up the operation. The other colleague that is getting training uh, is transplant surgeon. He is not urologist. He has a background of general surgery. So he needs to devote more time on the simulator before he is able to you know, to spend more time on uh, the real donor uh, and probably he's going to need a bit more time uh, to, to to be able to be independent. Okay. Uh, and then you mentioned something about the clinical and cost effectiveness of, we, we talked about laparoscopy, live donor lap and live donor robotic. What is it that's better about the robotic live donor operation compared to the lap live donor? So this is a challenge because uh, it's easier to prove your results and the benefits of the robot if you compare the robotic with an open procedure. Like when we do, for example, when we compare the robotic kidney transplant with the open. When you compare, however, laparoscopic with robotic, you just compare two minimally invasive approaches. And actually, on the laparoscopic operation, we already perform an enhanced recovery program, which means that the donors are getting out of the hospital very quickly. It's difficult uh, for this reason to prove the outcomes. However, when we compared our outcomes, we saw that uh, although we didn't find a statistically significant difference between the two procedures, there was a clear trend in favor of the robot in terms of intra-abdominal post-operative infections and wound infections post-operative. The reason it has not reached significant statistically significance is because of the numbers. Because yeah. we are doing, a, we have a very big number of pay of donors, but at the minute we have a, we are over 70 robotics. Uh, and interestingly, I, I will add on this, there is a recent paper published which shows that actually the advantages of the robot as, are being shown after the surgeons have been mastered the procedure. So what I expect in the coming years is that these publications are going to be more often where we will see the advantages of the robot compared to the laparoscopy. Okay. So basically, once you've flattened the learning curve, you think there's going to be other, other more interesting things we'll see, essentially, right? So, yeah, exactly. Makes sense. Yes. Makes sense. The, robot, the, the robot has. Yes. No, the robot has some advantages that you know you cannot uh, challenge. For example, the magnified view, three dimension, better freedom of, instru of uh, instrument handling. So all this, I expect, will be translated into uh, better outcomes for uh, the patients when you compare okay. to laparoscopy. Okay, that, that's amazing. So you've given us a nice overview of what you do in in terms of training and teaching and new new things you're doing. Um, just to slightly change the subject, uh, a lot of the viewers and listeners, they love to know how, what makes a surgeon tick, what makes you tick. So one of the things is, what do you like to do when you're not doing surgery? So what do you like to do when you're not doing surgery? Uh... 
surgery again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying you with a smile. I know, I know you are a very high, high volume surgeon. But when you're not doing surgery, how do yeah. you relax? How do you unwind? What do you do? So, um, I'll tell you, um, eat every day. I mean, uh, unfortunately, I don't have much time for uh, training and exercising because I have uh, small kids and uh, they need my time. Okay. So, what I'm doing and what I like to do is when I leave hospital, I like to walk towards home for, you know, between an hour and two hours. And this gives me, first of all, it takes me completely out of the hospital environment. Then it gives me time to think. And uh, many times, you know, when I have problems or uh, concerns or when I have something that, uh, you know, I need to find the solution, this is the time that I have with myself and then uh, I'm thinking about it. At the same time, this is my exercise, uh, which I think it keeps me fit. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, I spend, you know, a lot of my time with my family and my kids uh, because they are still young, so they need a lot of time from me. Wow. Okay, so you're basically meditating on your way home, I guess. <laughs> exactly. One, that's amazing. Yes. You look, I mean, you look well. That's good to know. And then in terms of um, uh, back home, because I know you're from originally from Greece, right? So from Athens, so you worked and trained? Yes, yes. yes. So you managed to... Yes, correct. You managed to go back to your country and support their surgical training programs and, you know, share knowledge. Do you still do that sort of thing? Definitely, yes. Uh, I mean, I was in Athens in uh, November where I performed a laparoscopic donor and then a recipient uh, in a pair um, uh, in a hospital that I used to work when I when I was back in Greece in you yeah. know before 2012. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, they are not doing laparoscopy at the minute, so I went to and then now we are in a phase that uh, I'm going to uh, help them develop the laparoscopic program in this hospital. Yeah. So yes. there is still a role for laparoscopy in certain countries because affordability, I'm guessing. Is that, what, is that probably the reason? Yes, correct. I mean, in uh, this hospital, for example, they don't have a robot. Uh, in Athens, they have a lot of robots, but only in the private sector, not in the public sector so far. Yeah. Uh, and laparoscopy definitely has its place there. And as you know, even open surgery, they are still doing in some centers, they are doing open surgery to remove the kidneys. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay. Although the robot is coming more and more and uh, finally is yeah. going to replace every other kind of surgery, yeah. I believe. Well, well, we can we can end on that on that part. Um, there are now several clinical robots available in the world, and so there's a lot more competition now mm -hmm. between all the companies. Also, um, yes. for the operations that you're discussing to do with live donor and also recipient, the um, modular robots now, single arm robots are now are being shown to have more applicability, aren't they? Depending on which type you've got. So have you any experience with the other robots, um, the ones which have modular arms, single arm, one, two, three, or four arms separately? So uh, I have tried, but I have used in clinical practice the CMR and the Hugo robot. Yeah. Uh, we have both in our hospital. Um, uh, and then, uh, yes, and I haven't used anything else at the minute, although I'm aware for other models that uh, yeah. are in the market. Okay. Because we talk about multi-quadrant robotic surgery. So, for example, the colorectal surgeons mm -hmm. are in multiple quadrants, and therefore the 
modular robotic systems might be more useful in, in multi-site mm. surgery. So anyway, something to think about. It's uh, we've had lots of different comments on this uh, over the past uh, podcasts that we've done. So I'm sure we'll have a lot more going forward. Which robot is the best for your specialty? Okay. But that'll be another question for another day. Okay. Okay. Well, little Dr. James, okay. it was an absolute pleasure to um, to talk to you. Time has just flown. Uh, you're a very lovely man to talk to. Amazing career uh, in the past and going forward. And I look forward to February when you when you do that first case. It'll be interesting. Maybe you can come back on and tell us all about it. Of course, it will be the pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, and yes, we, we will meet again in the future. Thank you so much. Um, so from the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery podcast, I'm Professor Hitendra Patel. Thank you for listening and watching. Thank you for listening to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery podcast, or GRASP for short. Please subscribe to be updated with all of our new podcasts coming out. If you would like to learn more about robotic assisted surgery, please go to www.roboticsurgerypodcast.com.